Well, to all the parents, I think most of them have departed, but to all the parents who brought their kids here uh, this morning to have them worship and lead us in worship, thank you. Uh, you take the rest of the day off. Those kids are just like uh, we are. As soon as they start singing, everybody starts yawning. Did you notice that? It's just a beautiful thing to watch and have our kids uh, lead us in worship. And we have another child to celebrate to my left. This rosebud belongs to Ellison Almond Holiday, uh, the newborn baby daughter of Taylor and Justin. So very thankful for a growing church and healthy babies and moms as they come into this world. Let me pray. And uh, we'll jump right in. We've got a lot to do today. Father, now we come uh, before you with uh, the echoes of the empty tomb still ringing in our ears. And you are still risen and still enthroned on high. And our lives have gone after that weekend just back into the normal pattern of life. But may we not forget that uh, you have left us with your spirit so that we're not alone. We have power, we have conviction, we have a way to live where your spirit testifies with our spirit, where we can appeal to you, where we can remind ourselves of who we are in Christ, what our identity is in this world. We don't have to find it in this world. You've given it to us, and now we're we have union, mystical union with you, and we get this chance, this hour, to worship you. There's so many things that we could be doing this day. We could uh, be on a hike, we could be sleeping in, we could uh, be at a coffee shop, but we're in this room with these friends to be able to look at this cross to be able to sing these songs of worship, to confess our sins, to remind ourselves of grace, to leave with this benediction, to reorient the rhythms of our life, to say, you're our God. And we hope you're pleased. And we wanna give our lives to you. These claims we talk about today, Christ of who you are, are not small claims. And so wake us up out of our spiritual slumber for some of us. For some of us who are struggling with sin, help us to lay that at your feet. For some of us who are apathetic, Father, remind us of who you are. Give us an urgency to life. It passes so quickly, and sometimes it seems like it's never going to end. We'll never get to the next chapter, but Father, all of our days are numbered, and they're in your book, and so help us uh, to live before your presence. We pray all these things in your name. Amen. The question today, the larger question is this. Is Christ divine? Is Jesus God? That's the big picture question that we're going to try to answer. But we have to access that question. We have to get to that question by asking other questions that are underneath it. And the main question underneath it is this, who gets to determine someone's identity? It's a major issue in our culture today. Who gets to determine someone's identity? Most of us want to project an identity to get other people to think things about us that we want to be true. For example, I went to the Masters last week. I know a lot of you lost bets on that because you thought I was going to mention it Easter Sunday morning and I didn't and I'm sorry. 
so I'm mentioning it now. At the Masters, basically, it's a, if, you have, if you've never been, it's a bunch of people that look just like me, okay? It's not a ton of diversity. But everybody wears a golf shirt with an emblem, or most people wear a golf shirt with an emblem. And that emblem signifies that country club that you've been to. And it's a way you project yourself to people. And so you walk around, everybody pulls out their most exclusive one that they can find, right? Nobody's like, well, I'm not going to mention one in town. Nope. Nobody wears one that's not well known. You pull out your best one and you want other people to look at that emblem and say, I can't believe you've been to Pine Valley. I can't believe you've been to Ohoop. You want other people to believe something about you. Nobody wears a LeBron James jersey. Nobody wears that. You all wear golf shirts projecting what you want your identity to be. We do this all the time in life. We project what we want other people to think about us. For example, the pronoun debate. He, her, you know, them, they, all of these things. I don't know if you've thought about this, but those aren't necessarily, primarily, uh, what you want to be addressed as. She, her, for example, that's only used when you're addressing somebody else about that person. It's how they want to be addressed when you're talking about them and they're not there. It's basically, this is what I want my identity to be. It's so critical to try to understand our identity. I went to RTS, Reformed Theological Seminary, uh, this past week with Scott Puckett, and I did a chapel talk and lecture and some other stuff. We did a lunchtime thing. We were trying to recruit students, and they, the topic was, uh, what were the uh, things you wished you had been taught in seminary? And I was just dropping some absolute pearls of wisdom on them. I mean, just brilliant stuff. But Scott... The first thing he said is, you have to learn how to develop self-awareness. And we were trading off. And so he said that first, and I said, my pearl of wisdom. And they basically said, okay, yeah, whatever. What about the self-awareness thing? That happened three times. Like I was bringing out my best material. And all they wanted to know about was self-awareness. How do I figure out who I am? How do I figure out what my identity is? That was the clear underpinning of that whole lunch that we had together. People were hungry for trying to understand their identity. Now, let's do a little bit of academic work. Uh, Charles Taylor, who's a Canadian philosopher, born in uh, 31, 1931, and uh, Michel Foucault, French philosopher, born in 1926, started to work out this issue of identity years ago. What Taylor said is identity was formed in community. Your culture, your people, your tribe in community would always tell you who you are. And if you lived up to that, then you had self-esteem. And what Taylor said is, we've now separated community identity and it's become individualistic. And Foucault was the one who said, yes, and it should be. What Foucault argued, and this is downstream now in our culture, like all of these things that we're dealing with in our culture are upstream philosophically. What Foucault said was, you get to determine who you are. And everybody else must then bow to it. Foucault said, and he projected this, once you determine who you are, it's now, it's not community oriented, it's individualistic. And if you say, I want to be this, everybody else must acquiesce and say, okay, then you're that. 
Foucault saw this years ago. They saw this in, in the 50s. Now, all of this comes to the point of understanding the claims of Christ. And here's why. Because the claims of Christ did not happen in individualistic sense. Jesus did not say, I'm God, you believe it. David Koresh did that. <laughs> the founder of Waco, he was the one who said, oh no, I'm God, y'all must all now, if to be a part of this cult, acquiesce to that. But the people that were a part of that raid, awful raid, and the people that were around him didn't believe he was God. What happens is in community, you form your identity and you learn who you are. I'll give you an example. Elizabeth and I were... Um, uh, a couple weeks ago in this situation with some people that we had just met, and they asked us to describe the other person. So I had to describe Elizabeth. She had to describe me with three adjectives. What an awful experience that is. <laughs> and so she, she gave her three adjectives about me, none of which I would have used for me. None. And I, I looked at her. I said, did you mean that first one? I'm not going to tell you what they were. I said, did you mean that first one? And she said, yes. She said, do you not think that's true of you? I said, I, it is. I just thought I hid it better. <laughs> like, I didn't know it was that apparent. But in community, you learn things about you that you would never believe about yourself. In community, that's how we validate claims of identity. So critical to understand that as we get to this question of, was Christ divine? Was Jesus actually the Son of God? This quote from C.S. Lewis has been passed around for years, but it's still so, so valuable. I've read it to you before, but let me read it to you again just to get us all on the same page because you might have forgotten it. A man who is merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level of a man who says he's a poached egg, or else the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman, or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great moral teacher. He has not left that open to us, and he did not intend to. Now, so critical, because most people, even in the church, will still diminish the claims of Christ and constantly say, what a great example to follow. What if I could be like Jesus and just be that obedient? All of these things. We constantly diminish the claims of Christ. What I found fascinating in studying this week is this. All the other world religions, all the other cults have an opinion about Jesus. For example, Islam believes, Muslims believe, that he was another prophet who taught and did miracles. Muslims actually believe that Jesus actually did miracles. That's an astounding reality. Judaism believed that he was a miracle worker, was not the Messiah, but looked like what the Messiah could be. Fascinating. The Baha'i faith believed that he was a wise teacher who came from God. There's, 
There's more Baha'is in this world than you might think. But they believe that Jesus actually did come from God, but was not God himself. Hindus believe that Jesus was a wise teacher who became a God. In other words, you can become a God like Jesus too. Buddhism believed that Jesus was an enlightened holy man. Jehovah's Witnesses, now we're moving from world religions to cults. Jehovah's Witnesses believe that he was created by Jehovah and was a lesser God. Mormons believe that he was a firstborn child who then progressed to be a God because of his faithfulness. But here's the fascinating thing about looking at what other religions believe of Jesus. Every world religion and every cult has an opinion of who Christ is. He's so central to everything that they're forced to try to come and reconcile who this man is. And that's so fascinating, and here's why. The Baha'i faith has no opinion about Muhammad. And Jews don't have any opinion about Krishna. And the Islam doesn't have any opinion about the Bhagavad Gita. I know I'm using terms, but these are all, they don't have opinions about other, but Jesus is so central that every world religion in every cult is forced to say, what do we think about this man? How do we understand him? How do we rationalize who he is and what he did? And fascinating, the latest study says that 30% of evangelicals, which is what we are, broad swath, we're largely uh, self-determined evangelicals, 30% of evangelicals today don't believe that Jesus is God. Martin Lloyd-Jones says, if you do not believe in the unique deity of the Lord Jesus Christ, you are not a Christian, whatever else you may be. We're not looking at a good man only. We're not interested merely in the greatest teacher the world has ever seen. We're face to face with the fact that God, the eternal son, has been in this world and that he took upon him human nature and dwelled among us, a man amongst men, God-man. We are face to face with the mystery and the marvel of the incarnation and the virgin birth. It's all here and it shines out in the fullness of amazing glory. What manner of man is this? He is more than a man. That is the answer. He is also God. All right, so we're whittling down the point now, but let me just kind of review where we've been. Jesus' claim that he was God is not an individual claim that then we must therefore believe. It is a claim that he made, but it's also a claim that was made about him. For example, I could claim I'm 6'5". Somebody laughed in the first service when I said that. I'm still offended. I couldn't figure out where it came from, but it was that general region, which is why we cleared those pews. This, <laughs> that would have to be validated. No matter how much I believe that, that claim would have to be validated by my doctor, by my wife, by other people for it to be a claim that could be tr proven true. What makes Jesus divine, or how we can understand that he is God divine, is that his father... He, his followers, and even his enemies believed that he was God. Now that's fascinating. Even the enemies of Christ believed that he was God. So let's look at those claims, all of this done together. First of all, the claim that God believed that Jesus was God. Mark, uh, Matthew chapter 
Three, remember the heavens opened up and God said, this is my son whom I love, with whom I am well pleased. And then the direct, there's direct, indirect, and circumstantial evidence for all of this. The indirect evidence is all the way through the scriptures. There are all of these pictures of what it's going to look like for God to come to this earth. And so in Daniel chapter 7, for example, I think it will be on the screen. There it is. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like the Son of Man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before them. And to him was given dominion, glory, and the kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away in his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. That language then is incorporated when Jesus is before the council in Mark 14, and he says, he remained silent and made no answer, and the high priest asked him, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you'll see the son of man seated at the right hand of power, coming in the clouds of heaven. What's he doing there? At that moment, Jesus is saying, all the indirect evidence that's been all the way through Scripture are all breadcrumbs that are pointing you to me. I am the fulfillment of everything God said was going to happen when I come to this earth. But interestingly, his enemies, the opposition, also thought he was God. James chapter 2, you believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Even the demons believe. The, the world forces uh, that remind us and wake us up that this world is not just about empiricism, what we can see, feel, touch, taste. It, there's more going on than that. James 2 says, even the demons believe and know who he is. Luke chapter 8, for example, when he saw Jesus, the demon-possessed man, he cried out and he fell to him. And he said with a loud voice, what have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I beg you, do not torment me. Um, so fascinating because even the demons and the demon-possessed man had a better theology at that point than the disciples did. The followers believed that God was Jesus. Titus chapter 2, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of God, our Savior, Jesus Christ. John chapter 1, all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Colossians 1, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created for him and by him. And then, of course, there's circumstantial evidence. He forgave sins. Uh, he healed people. He heals the paralytic. He did miracles. Even the other world religions recognized that. He received worship. And the opposition were so offended that they wanted to stone him. John chapter 10 says this, the Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Now that's fascinating. What would it take, what would I have to do to make you wanna kill me this afternoon? What would I have to say? 
I mean, if I could say some really politically charged statements, and here's what would happen. I'd say some things that maybe offend you politically or otherwise, and it'd all go underground. You know, you'd start, you wouldn't talk to me first. This is how it usually works in churches. You wouldn't talk to me about it. You'd go talk to your Sunday school about it and community group about it. And then, you know, eventually it would come up through, start to bubble up. I'd start to hear rumors about Andy's this or Andy's that. And then eventually there'd be like a coup d'etat, maybe a committee. Maybe some people would talk to elders. It takes about six to eight months. People would start doubting. Now you're listening to sermons with confirmation bias. That's how it works in like the Christian South. You know, it's, we've all been around it. They wanted to stone Jesus. The things he said were so out there that their response was, let's kill him. This is too outlandish. These claims are too large. Let's drive to his house this afternoon and make sure he never preaches again. I mean, that is what is happening. What did he say that made him want to do that? Verse 32, and hopefully we'll get it up on the screen. Jesus answered them, I've shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? And I'm speeding up. Do you say that I'm from the Father, consecrated and sent of this world? You're blaspheming because I said I am the Son of God? If I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you might know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. So why does this matter? Here's why. If Jesus is God, then you can know who you are. And it's impossible to know your own identity outside the reality of who Jesus says he is and claims to be. For example, you're constantly, and I'm constantly going to believe lies about ourselves. What we need is a God who can tell us who we actually are. And what Jesus says is, you're my brother, you're my sister. You're forgiven, you are loved. You can repent, you can follow me. What our hearts will constantly say is, I'm an orphan, I'm no good, I have to work harder, I've got to do better, I haven't lived up to my potential. And because of who Jesus says he is, you can know who you are. Now think about these claims. How does it hit differently when Jesus says, I have come that you might have life and have it abundantly? How does that hit differently than when Jesus says it compared to if your school teacher said it? If a professor said, I've come that you might have life and have it abundantly, you'd think that's weird. But if Jesus says that about you, that's a, it hits completely differently. How does it hit differently when Jesus says, I have said these things to me that you might have peace. In the world you'll have tribulation, but take heart, I've overcome the world. If God himself says that, that hits differently than if your doctor says that to you. If your doctor says that to you, you're like, you can't even get my blood pressure figured out. What are you talking about? But when Jesus says, I have overcome the world, take heart and have peace, it hits completely differently. I am the resurrection and the life. 
is a completely different statement coming out of God's mouth than it is your mother-in-law's. That would be weird if your mother-in-law said that. As you forgive others their sins, your heavenly Father will forgive you. That is a completely different phrase. If it comes from the mouth of God, not just a moral teacher or a parent, the claims of Christ are meaningful because Jesus is divine, not just a moral teacher. And so, uh, just by way of application, let me get to this last passage, our main passage. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands. Put out your hand. Place it on my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. There's the evidence for the resurrection. And Thomas said, and this is the main phrase I want to kind of just drill into you by way of application, my Lord and my God. In other words, you are worthy to follow. You're my Lord. Everything now, you have authority over my life. You have a kingdom that is not my kingdom. You are my complete Lord and I will follow you. And you're also my God. You're worthy to follow and you're worthy of worship. And so just to pin these two things down into our hearts, I want you to think about what it would mean in your life to again this morning say, I'm not just saying I'm a Christian. I'm not just believing that. I'm willing to say, you're my Lord. I will follow you wherever you take me. John Stott says it this way. Insistence on security is incompatible with the way of the cross. What daring adventures the incarnation and the atonement were. Were What a breach of convention and decorum that almighty God should renounce his privileges in order to take on human flesh and bear human sin. Jesus had no security except in his father. So to follow Jesus is always to accept at least a measure of uncertainty, danger, and rejection for his sake. You know, when I became a believer, I was 14 years old, the corner dorm room of Bristol, Tennessee, King's College, I can remember it like it was yesterday, Thursday night, July 8th. My little 14-year-old heart, I mean, I knew I was a sinner. I didn't really know I was a sinner until I got married, and then I really figured out that I was a sinner. But I knew I was a sinner, but my little 14-year-old heart knew this. There's a God who loves you, who's going to protect you and defend you, who will never leave you or forsake you. And if you follow him, he's going to take you on the adventure of your life. He's going to lead you to green pastures. He's going to take you through peaks and valleys and all of these places. Just follow him. And that's what set my heart on fire. Somewhere along the way, as Christians... We've domesticated the claims of Christ and domesticated ourselves with them. And we forget that you're on the adventure of your life to follow him wherever he's going to take you. There is Christian literature that kind of help us with this. For example, Pilgrim's Progress, which is a, 
a whole book, which is basically a metaphor, an analogy for following Christ in life. And in Pilgrim's Progress, John Bunyan says, what God says is best is best. It's just a great line. That just clarifies so much. Look, if you're a high school kid, you're a college kid, you're doubting what you should think about your sexuality, you're doubting what you should think about how to orient your life towards honoring Christ and living to please him. What God says is best is best, full stop. Though all the men in the world are against it, my name is now Christian, but my name used to be Graceless. I'll advise you then to quickly get rid of your burden, for until, you'll, until then, you'll never be settled in your mind or enjoy the benefits of the blessings that God has given you. So friend, because God is who he said he was and because of his claims, you can lay down your burden now. You just don't have to string a good week together to compensate for your sin. You don't have to feel forgiven. You don't have to kind of deal with your guilt. You can lay all of those things down at Jesus' feet today and say, okay, I'm just going to follow you. Wherever you want to take me, God, wherever you want to do, in my life this week, you are my Lord and you are my God. My Lord and my God. In other words, I'll worship you. I'm pretty tired this morning. Elizabeth took me to a concert last night. We went to go see Ben Rector, which is her, uh, she bought me tickets for my birthday, which was nice of her. Uh, ben Rector's her musical crush. Um, so let me just repeat that statement. She bought me tickets for my birthday to her musical crush. And there's a, there's a unique experience to sit beside your wife and hold her hands while she's looking at her crush. And it is what it is. I like Ben. He's not my crush. He's her crush. But I will buy her tickets for my musical crush next year. And I'm not going to tell you who that is. Um, there's something about uh, music in that venue Peace Center or any venue, but it, only, it, it just leaves you lacking. The times I've seen you uh, 2 Dave Matthews, one of the bigs that has a whole plethora, anthology of music, you, you leave those venues and you always think, I wish they sang that song. I wish they did that. I wish they did that. I wish they, it always leaves you lacking something. You might not ever see them in a similar way. Worship is not just listening to music and clapping along. It creates a longing in your heart to know more of who God is. Like last night, we left the show, and I, I thought it was a great show, but I never thought, golly, I, I belong to you, Ben Rector. Maybe Elizabeth did, but I didn't. But in worship, you come, and it's not just the singing, it's the confession, it's everything that's saying, I belong to you. There is no God like you. You are altogether unlike any religion, and you know my name. And you've saved me. And you've defended me. And you've covered everything so that I can approach you and I can live life before you. It's what the world is longing for. Last quote, and then we'll be done. 
Uh, Richard Dawkins is a pretty famous atheist. I've read pretty much everything he's written. He had a, a big debate with John Lennox, who is a world-class scientist uh, who believes in Jesus. And in the debate, Richard Dawkins said, I think that when you consider the beauty of the world and you wonder how it came to be, what it is, you're naturally overwhelmed with a feeling of awe, a feeling of admiration, and you almost feel a desire to worship something. I feel this. I recognize that other scientists, such as Carl Sagan, feel this. Einstein felt it. We, all of us, share a kind of religious reverence for the beauties of the universe, for the complexity of life, for the sheer magnitude of the cosmos, for the sheer magnitude of geological time. And it's tempting to translate that feeling of awe and worship into a desire to worship some particular thing, a person or an agent. You want to attribute it to a maker or to a creator. He's just... He's so close. He's just so close. And then with one last sentence, he eradicates it all. What science has now achieved is an emancipation from that impulse to attribute these things to a creator. No, it hasn't. Because you just, the first five sentences were all saying, I feel this and I can't get away from it. And I, I, I want to attribute it to something. Well, we're now free from having to deal with that. No, you're not. You're made to worship. And aren't you glad? Uh, unlike Dawkins. Man, I, just, I, still, I still weep uh, over the people that are so close to knowing Christ. How miserable must that be? to be so close and yet so far away at the same time. But friends, you're not in that position. Weep no longer. You get to worship. Today, this week, this month, because of the grace of Christ, you get to call yourself a Christian and you get to say, my Lord and my God, whatever you say is best is best and I'll follow you. Not with the Reformed Dutch pragmatism, not with a, an American girding up our loins, with joy, with mirth, with contentment. You get to say this afternoon, you are my Lord and my God, and it is my honor and my privilege to serve you as my king. Now go and do likewise. Father, we pray. That as we're about to sing this song before the throne of God above, we pray that we really would view this as worship. That you are our defense. That we get to live as children uh, of the risen Lamb, our perfect, spotless righteousness. And now because of what you have done, God, whether we believe it or not, even if we're struggling with our sin, our lives are hidden with you. We sing these songs, they're familiar to us, but, but may we not just sing this like it's some concert. These last few minutes may be the start of our week to say we're worshiping you. There's no God like you. And now heal us, remind us of the righteousness of Christ for us. We pray in your name, amen.
I, I am a professional. I usually know what I'm doing. But I totally forgot that we were going to say the Nicene Creed together. Would you stand with me? And uh, this Nicene Creed is meant to help us understand who God is. Would you say it with me and then we'll sing. I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and of earth, of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of his Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made, who for us and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and was made man and was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried and the third day he rose again according to the scriptures and ascended into heaven and seated at the right hand of the Father. And he shall come again with glory to judge both the living and the dead, whose kingdom shall have no end. And I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son together is worshiped and glorified, who spoke by the prophets. And I believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. Knowledge, one baptism for the remission of sins. I look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen.